You open up your bag of specialty coffee. You weigh, grind, and the aroma blows your mind. Your brew goes perfectly, but uh uh-oh. What went wrong? Your water, that's what. Third Wave Water helps give that cafe-quality experience at home, unlocking all the bright flavors your coffee has to offer. Just add one stick of minerals to a gallon of distilled water to upgrade your coffee experience. Visit thirdwavewater.com and use coupon code COFFEEPODCAST for 10% off your first order. You're listening to The Coffee Podcast, where our focus is people and our language is coffee. It was just the other day that I was talking with some friends about the idea of value. What, what, what is value? Um, some context. Let's say you walk into the local grocery store. You pick up a can of beans and you say, Ah, oh, this can of beans is more expensive than that can of beans. This can of beans is too expensive. What do I mean? And how did I get here? What is too expensive? Um, is it relative? Um, without getting into the weeds of the conversation too much, what if that price of beans that is in the cheaper can doesn't cover the cost of producing the beans? Why am I talking about beans anyway? <laughs> this is kind of a, why did I choose a can of beans when coffees are, coffee's called beans? Well, I'm going to confuse the whole thing. The point is coffee price. If the coffee price is too low, it does not cover the cost to produce that coffee. By definition, that's not sustainable financially. That is not sustainable, and it's not good for the people growing coffee, and it's not good for the people picking coffee. And if it's not good for those people, I would argue it's not good for the industry. Coffee price. There's a book. Well, before I get to the book, pause that thought. This is going to be a pretty raw edit. Let's take a step back. We're currently experiencing uh, an interesting, you hear me clicking, an interesting uh, situation. We have two headlines from Daily Coffee News right now that I think are really interesting to hold up to each other. Uh, let's let's read them in order of coming out. March 30th, 2023. Fair Trade International makes historic raise to coffee prices. Good. Now let's read the other one. This is July 6, 2023, Nick Brown, Fairtrade USA freezing price minimums plans to revise model. We're not going into these topics, actually. I recommend going and reading the articles. I'll link to them in the podcast episode description. Uh, but what we are going to talk about is, as I pick up this book, you can hear me flipping the pages. It's called Cheap Coffee as a photo of a, an upside down coffee mug. And the subtitle is Behind the Curtain of the Global Coffee Trade. And our guest today is Carl Weinhold, the author. Carl, welcome to the show. I want to hear a little bit about your coffee story. Where does it start? Have you always been in coffee or was there a major transition point for you? Yeah, it was kind of a gradual shift, I guess, and not the traditional one straight into coffee. I worked in rural development, if that's a term, for a while with different crops, mostly like agriculture, you know, how to get some product that's grown in somewhere in the global south to somewhere else in the global north, because I and the people I worked with thought that was always a good thing. So I did that in, in overlap with coffee and different parts of Latin America from time to time for a few years. 
And you know, at a certain point, I thought something's missing here. None of the people that were paying for those kind of projects were interested in doing things differently. So I got together with a lot of the coffee farmers I had met over the years who wanted to create a different kind of a supply chain. And we started this project, Cedro Alto, in like 2012. And yeah, I just like, I knew nothing about specialty coffee when I started actually working with it. But I guess I could read things and learn slightly more than the other people I was working with. So so I got the job hmm. and just learned everything the hard way, usually by making mistakes for the next 10 years or so. <laughs> yeah. So that was basically 2013 to 2022. So you grew up in Maryland. Was there specialty out there back when you were growing up? I have no idea. <laughs> well, I left there when I was 17, I guess. Okay. So I never went back, really. Okay. But no, actually, the, the first specialty coffee I ever had was in, in Colombia. Oh, cool. And you spent most of your time in Colombia, and that's where Cedro Alto was as well, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Started off like here and there, Brazil, Mexico, and Central America. Uh, I worked as a consultant, so I went everywhere, but, uh, but home was always Colombia. Cool. Very cool. I picked up your book. It's one of the things we're going to talk about. I've had your book, regrettably, on my bookshelf for a while. I started it, took some notes, and I got behind on my reading. But when I was peeking through the book, again, refreshing myself a little bit on what I did read, I saw that you mentioned Lissa, I'm going to say her name wrong, potentially, Velasquez. She seemed like a big contributor to your journey in coffee or your journey in education, maybe. I just wanted to hear a little bit about her and her impact on you and, and what that was like. Oh, yeah. Also may not be what you're thinking. And yeah, had a really big impact for sure. Professor Velasquez was one of my teachers in college. Actually, the first time I, I went out of the U.S. was with her to Mexico to study abroad in, in southern Mexico. And that was kind of uh, kind of planted a seed of you know, what I would do from there on. So kind of didn't know anything, just felt that the world was everything that I could see in front of me at 17 years old. But what got there and uh, had a lot of different experiences, seeing a lot of agriculture, of, of artisans, of kind of different economies that I never knew existed, mm. how people lived in their own world so far away from the one that I was used to and interfaced with global trade that worked through these different relationships of dependency with other actors on, on the other side of the world, mostly in the global north, like a town full of people that were like hammering away on these copper sinks and they went to a, a Home Depot eventually kind of seeing the, the magnitude of inequality and that this historical and structural inequality that exists that was kind of outside what I could imagine at the time, as well as kind of my own undeserved privilege, if you will, mm. kind of how these structures and forces that you know, dictated who could do what existed and kind of made my, my own relative comfort possible mm. and uh, prohibited some of theirs. I saw that you mentioned Lissa and kind of gave her a significant section and sort of a thank you at the beginning of the book, Cheap Coffee. So I wanted to know that impact. Sometimes, I don't know, we may have listeners who are teachers or professors and, you know, to have you on the show and to hear the story of how you were inspired by somebody could be inspiring for people who are teaching. And so I wanted to give an opportunity for that too. Sounds like that trip to Mexico was really impactful to you. Did it kind of set the track for you? Was it a major paradigm shift for you? Or how would you explain that? Yeah, eventually. I mean, not at first. I guess like everyone else that was there that was doing these kind of things. I mean, I just kept on the same path for a long time. But it was just kind of something that I was reminded of later on in different experiences. 
and just seeing like what things are like in, in somewhere else made me want to travel. And, you know, the more I traveled, the more I learned about people and talked to folks and, and learned things. But yeah, I guess I never even told Lisa about this until last year, which is like 20 years later. Hmm. Uh, but it was you know, several years after. And we, I remember we had this book, um, Economic Development in Latin America, and it was like a telephone book. I don't think anybody read it. I didn't read it, uh, but we had to buy it. <laughs> and I don't know why. I just like saw it sitting around years later and picked it up again. And then that kind of reignited everything. Hmm. But there's there so many things going on. Like I, I was just remembering, we went to this one place in Michoacan state of Mexico. And it's just like this indigenous group is this community owned forest where they do forestry, they cut down trees selectively and they have these like, massive machines where they squirt water and it takes the bark off these trees to send them to the mill. And they had this other guy sitting outside like in the parking lot with this little axe shaving this bark off this log. And I remember asking the person that was showing us around, like, why is that guy doing that? If you've got these massive machines, do it a thousand times faster with mm. just squirting water. And, and he says, well, because we didn't have a job for that guy. Mm. And I remember thinking, that's so stupid. Like, why would anyone do that? And, and, and I, I continue to think that for a really long time, probably most people who were brought up in the same like business paradigm I was would view this. But it's a, kind of an image that keeps coming back as years go by. You know, that there are different ways to, to organize economies that in this people have different goals. It's not about the bottom line. It's about this community using this forest to provide a livelihood for this community. Hmm. And just one of a universe of diversity of economic orientations and, and how, how work is divided and done and organized. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a theme I saw kind of throughout the book. And also, as we move on to talk about the agroecology stuff, that there's this sort of this theme of, you know, the bottom line is not what everybody always thinks about when they're making decisions. But not to get too much into that, I want to hear about this book, Cheap Coffee. What inspired you to write this book? And then I'm going to ask you some questions, sort of more pointed questions, so we can get to the bottom of some stuff. Sure. Yeah, I guess when I started this, I had been working with this kind of stuff with moving coffee around and trying to represent this group of farmers for about eight years or so. And I had a lot of good conversations with other folks along the chain, with roasters especially. I was doing all the sales. But sometimes I got the feeling that there's a lot of alternative facts floating around, a lot of very different versions of reality that are getting mixed with marketing messages sometimes and kind of a lot of non-solutions being pushed around as like nice things we could do but based on like very different versions of what we're even talking about hmm. and at the same time i had been reading a lot of stuff i dealt always dealt with a lot of like academic papers and empirical research and i wasn't involved in any of that myself but i would engage with it so you know I, I tried to just put together everything that i had i had noticed and learned and and read about because i mean i had i had probably work through thousands of pages of, of academic literature. And I knew that people that have to stand in front of a roaster all day probably aren't going to have time to, to work through all that. So hmm. I just kind of wanted to pull together everything that I had accessed over the previous almost a decade and, and put that into some kind of a more digestible version. Yeah, I mean, not necessarily to sell more coffee, just to kind of put it all together, put it all out there. Like these are the different perspectives on how this thing could work. We don't really know, but just be aware that there are different ways to look at it. Mm. This is kind of what I tried to do. 
you mentioned some alternative facts, I think is the way you put it, that you heard going around. Could you give me an example of one or two that you would hear that would kind of make you pause? I guess generally the notion of helping, like the idea that like, let's not talk about price transparency and you know how pricing has changed over the years. Let's talk about that school we built or let's talk about that well we drilled. These kind of things, how do I say, diversions from, from what's really going on, like I'm not going to give you that, but I'll give you this other stuff instead. Okay. Kind of drawing attention away from what might have been central or how transparency is used. Like, I'll, I'll be transparent about this thing, so I don't have to be about that other thing. Oh, okay. So you're saying like, oh, we'll talk about the thing that we're impacting in the coffee growing region, but we're not going to talk about the price of coffee. Am I on the right track? Yeah, for example. Okay. So what is cheap coffee? Let's try and set this into different contexts. You know, when I say cheap and somebody else is cheap, maybe they're thinking different prices. Can we try and get an idea for what would be maybe cheap green, cheap one pound roasted, a cheap 12 ounce cup of coffee? What do we mean when we're saying cheap? I wish I could answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) And I might have been able to try if this were two years ago, but uh, the world has changed a lot in that time. Hmm. So yeah, it's it's difficult uh, because it's it's relative. I mean, ask someone what's cheap, it will be something that's cheaper than something else. But but what if they're all cheap, or what if they're all expensive, and one is not cheap and the other one's expensive? So these are tough, like philosophical questions. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, what we can point to is that retail coffee and green coffee have gotten cheaper over the last thirty years. Okay in real terms and and even in nominal terms. I think the consumer price index for coffee in the U.S. has been negative for at least the last 10 years, or in a total of the last 10 years, I mean. Hmm. I have to see what exact year range that's from. I saw that the other day. And then in, in relative terms, since the the, the sea market has, has risen in the last couple of years, that you could say, I mean, okay, coffee's not cheap anymore. It was until 2020, but not anymore. But I mean, as that's happened, we've seen at, at least in Colombia, where I still talk to a lot of farmers, the direct production costs have risen even more. So mm. by coffee not becoming cheap anymore, it still kind of is cheap because the costs of making it have risen so much that farmers aren't actually doing better yeah. because of this. So then if you think about that, you can say, well, we don't even need to raise the price then because farmers aren't going to make money anyway. So this is like just the complete dependency on both sides hmm. are just kind of treading water there. So in, I don't know, <laughs> to you know muddy the water even further for you, I don't know what it is. It's been a while since I had this kind of conversation about going to a diner and, you know, having unlimited refills of this drink. Oh, yeah. Being kind of a picture of, oh, it's just, you know, there's just so much of it. You know, it's just so cheap. I can just refill your cup for 12 hours a day, no extra charge kind of thing. That's a picture maybe of the problem that we take for advantage, at least in the U.S. You go to a diner and they just refill, 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 refill as if it's just unlimited limited. But yeah, I I see what you're saying. It's how do you define what is cheap? And I mean, what's cheap to one person isn't cheap to somebody else. One way I think we can look at is that reference points. I mean, unfortunately, the C market is the main reference point for most folks, even though it's like one specific thing, one specific grade of coffee. But there are other things like the specialty coffee transaction guide is something that I think is, is really useful. And I was just looking at that recently. And in the last couple of years, we can look at like 83 point plus specialty coffee. I think the the median price is 447 per pound. Mm, okay. So there's one number for people to keep in mind. Is that a good price or is it a bad price? I have no idea. 
I don't think anyone could. It's relative to the context, to somebody's lifestyle, whatever. Yeah. About 20% of retail prices of green coffee were the FOB prices, so the export price. And then of the export price, 80% of that went to Farmgate. And that's the global aggregate medians. So I think those kind of numbers are, are useful. I mean, that's to compare one supply chain to the pack. But is the pack doing okay or not? That's, that's another question. Yeah. You know, the definition of a specialty coffee being 80 points or plus, right? That would be a specialty. Anything below is considered commodity. Yeah. So looking at very specific thresholds for quality too is going to have different implications on price. I mean, the way that I might think of it is, you know, on a tight budget in my household, if I'm buying specialty, we're around 15 to $17 a pound is kind of where we sit, which I don't consider to be cheap coffee. It's certainly not expensive. But then you go to a, a place like in the U.S., you might go to Costco or something like that and see a five pound bag for something significantly less. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to have a conversation about this. <laughs> I think it's quite opaque and kind of impossible to get to the bottom of currently because as a consumer, what you see on the price may have nothing to do with you know, how the rest of the folks involved are being compensated. I mean... There are really scaled roasters that are still doing a good job of roasting the coffee, but their processing cost is so much less than someone with like a full-time employee standing in front of a five-kilo roaster all the time. Because of scale, right? Yeah. And I mean, is a five-kilo coffee taste better than a full-bag roaster? I doubt it. <laughs> I mean, if it's anyone's guess. Okay, let's move on to some less murky water, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it's just as murky. If I say I want cheap and really good coffee, I want it to be cheap. I want it to be good. This reminds me of that triangle. I think it's a triangle that I've seen where it's like there's quality, there's price. What's the third one? I don't remember. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like you can have two, but you can't have three. Yeah. It's something like that. You can have two, but you can't have all three. Is there anything fundamentally wrong with this statement? I think I kind of just let the cat out of the bag on this one, but. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And I mean, if you do have one of those triangles, there's nothing that says you can't have all three. If we're talking about geometry, maybe, but this is not geometry. You know, this is trade and social behavior. Yeah. But this is natural. This is uh, human nature. You have a finite amount of resources. You want to do as much as you can. I mean, everyone has their income and you know, they want to have the best standard of living they can with that. That's completely normal. It would be you know, frightening if that weren't the case. But I think the difference is like, what are you willing to do to maximize your own interests? Are you willing to sacrifice someone else's interests? Are there like guardrails that prevent you from you know, affecting someone else's interests based on your own? And you know, this is a question of bargaining power. So I, I think there's like this intuition that if I go to the store, whatever they charge me, I'll pick up this thing. They charge me this amount. I'm going to pay this amount. Why would I pay more? I couldn't even pay more if I wanted to. But then the question becomes, why is that thing on your shelf with that price? Is that someone else's fault or is that your fault? And this is tough mm. because like, I mean, they offered it to me. That's what it said on that offer sheet. And that's the price I paid. So I, it's not my fault. So I think this is where it gets tough that like, why are the options available to someone? Like if I can squeeze you down to a level where you can't even move or eat or do anything because I want to, you know, 
have you do something for me then should you be able to do that like people have desires all the time but they don't they don't act on them you know people might get very angry and want to injure someone but just because they have a desire doesn't mean they should be able to do it or it's justifiable to do it you got me thinking about that image of yeah i grabbed something on the shelf at the grocery store and paid the price that's the price of that thing because that's what the sticker said yeah and i think there's a sensitivity like if i go back and it's 50 cents more am i gonna really notice like is jesse gonna notice (laughs) maybe not if it's two dollars three dollars more am i still gonna buy it am i gonna throw a tantrum in the aisle yeah (laughs) what's what's gonna happen and this gets to the markups as well i mean if we look like what I'm working on now has something to do with this is like how these markups have evolved. I mean, this has something to do with the cost of processing roasted coffee, but that technology hasn't changed much in a long time. But we can see in empirical economic studies that as the price of green coffee goes up, the retail price of coffee goes up. As the green coffee price goes down, the retail coffee price does not go down nearly as much or as fast. So I, th- I think in, in, in some ways, this idea of like transferring this problem of cheap coffee onto consumers is another deflection. I mean, not across the board because there are costs and everything, but the average markup has gone up quite a lot since the 1970s. Hmm. So I don't, I don't think this needs to be put completely on consumers all the time. Yeah. Interesting. And there's been a lot of history and like a lot of uh, major, I feel like coffee events since the 1970s too, not to get into those. Let's see here. I'm going to pivot a little bit. When you started to write this book, Cheap Coffee, did any topics morph as you wrote? Did you come into it expecting like, hey, these are exactly the topics? Or did something blow your mind and say, oh, man, I got to include this? I'm curious about the process. Yeah. I mean, I started basically just thinking back and, and remembering a lot of conversations I'd had over the years, the things that people would ask me about, the things that, that people were often confused about. Like, I mean, I used to spend a lot of time traveling around, talking to roasters in, in different parts of the world about you know, sustainability issues and, and questions of equitability in, in the supply chain. And just like kind of the things that I saw people were often confused about, things that, that I was confused about and wanted to figure out. Um, and it was just that. And I started kind of reading everything I could get my hands on and making it into a big old spaghetti bowl and then trying to, to organize it and, and get it all grouped into topics and things. But yeah, I mean, what I thought it was going to be didn't end up being uh, what it was. A lot of like the quote unquote economics of it. You know, I, I went up with a very cursory understanding of like what they teach you in, in undergrad about economics. And it's, you know, this mainstream uh, neoclassical theories. And, you know, this is supply and demand and this why price is what it is. And uh, if you make too much coffee, well, then the price is going down or you better watch out. Mm-hmm. And these kind of things. And, and the more I got into it, I realized that I had only scratched the surface before that there are many theories about how these things work. And none of them, well, not none, but. A lot of them are just as valid as the others. And, and I think this is a, a whole like theoretical paradigm that all of these things, this thing, the whole idea of supply and demand and, and things like this and you know, elasticities and, and whatnot, you know, these are all made up drawings that, that we use to try to explain the aggregate behavior of a lot of humans. 
And that's not an easy task. It's not a task that you can complete. I mean, none of these drawings or formulas are ever going to be completely correct. And I just kind of took a lot of them as facts in the past. Hmm. I saw some contradictions where what I would notice in, in reality didn't really match up to that formula and that little drawing that I knew was supposed to be correct. But it was only getting into it that I realized that there are actually some really fundamental contradictions that these little drawings might not really be sufficient to answer the questions that, that need to be asked here. Mm. That, you know, the, the socially complex stakeholder groups can't be summarized with the model. Like, these are groups of human beings. They're always changing. They have different aspirations. It's not just, you know, profit rational. You can't predict their behavior based on one single formula. Interesting. Yeah. I also realized I was, I was guilty of a lot of the things that I was critiquing and things I hadn't planned on critiquing when I started doing it in my work. I realized that I had been the one that was prescriptive, that wasn't really listening to the people who were being affected by, you know, how we were setting up these supply chains. I thought I knew what was best for people a lot of the time. So you know, this combined with some of like, the questions that I was not able to answer based on the literature that, that went into this are kind of why I changed my own course after this, uh, because the, oh, the entire thing is based on literature that was already out there. I mm -hmm. didn't do any like actual data collection and analysis. Yeah, no, I think if you go through the table of contents, which every good book reader should do, <laughs> there's a very good overview of topics as it relates to the price of coffee and, and these kind of key things to understand. I'm excited to dig more into it, frankly, but I'm excited as well for our listeners to maybe take a peek. And with that, I want to ask you kind of one more question about cheap coffee. Sure. This is kind of a weird question, but I like it. If our listeners had to pick one chapter to read or one section to read, what section would you urge them to read? Maybe the part on like, I think it's chapter four on sustainability efforts. Or the second one is like the explanation of the value chain. I mean, this is more of an overview area, but like, what are these sustainability efforts that are out there? What is worked in what way? What is not worked in another way? I think is potentially useful if you've only got time to read one. Okay. But maybe the good thing is it's kind of like an encyclopedia. Yeah. So you can just pick it up and read a section, put it down, skip to another section. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking at the major categories, introduction to coffee economics, the international value chain, the farm, sustainability, the solutions, hits and misses. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. That's a lot to consider with the idea of coffee price. I recommend picking up Carl's book, Cheap Coffee, if you can find it. And also, I again recommend reading those articles I mentioned at the beginning. They will be linked in the episode description, as I mentioned before. And really, it's just kind of a short goodbye today. Um, I'm excited for the upcoming episodes. Bear with me as I work to get them out. Um, but in the meantime, oh, 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 sorry. One more note, one more note. There is a giveaway. It's still active. Uh, email subscribers, you've already gotten that email about how to participate and only email subscribers can participate. If you haven't gotten that link, feel free to email back if you subscribe and you, you haven't seen the survey. I'll be sure to get you that survey link. We'll close out the, uh, the giveaway and then we'll be giving away some cool coffee merch, uh, specifically uh, a book this time. Well, that about does it. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, and until next time, happy brewing.